Moms Have Bad Days, Understanding Postpartum Mood Disorders, the companion podcast to the book by the same name by me, author and host, Erin Simpson. Hello, and welcome back to another episode, finally, of Good Moms Have Bad Days. Um, I'm calling today's episode Understanding Motherhood. First of all, I am very sorry for the delay in this episode. What started as a Pinterest and Google search led to a whole rabbit hole I couldn't get out of and I took way too long trying to put my thoughts together. So please bear with me if this episode seems all over the place. Um, I did my best. So here we go. Growing up, I watched That Girl, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, as well as Laverne and Shirley, and any other fantastic show that came out in the 70s thanks to Nick at Night. These shows made me want to be a fabulous single working woman in the city. I held on to that goal until I was 18 and actually given the chance to apply for a college out of state and start on my own glamorous single life. But for some reason, I ended up afraid to leave my mom, my friends, and applied for state schools instead. Once I stopped the freshman year binge drinking and partying, I focused my sights on a career as a writer and that single female in the city trope I'd grown up aspiring to. And for several several years, I lived it. But eventually, I became the poor friend who was still going out, still dating, still, quote, trying to figure her life out, end quote, even though I had a career. I had a home that I rented, but still, I had two dogs, a cat, and enough money to pay the bills. What I did not have was a steady boyfriend or ring or kids, and even the feminist friends I had growing up had moved away from their original plans of being the kind of sex-in-the-city feminists we were obsessed with watching in our apartment every week. All of my friends, however, did become working moms, and I admired them for it. To my knowledge, I'm the only one in our core friend group who couldn't hack working and mothering, thanks in part to crippling postpartum depression and also in part to some insane ideas that had unknowingly been ingrained in my, quote, I don't want children ever until I had children brain, end quote, <laughs> that made me feel like if I went to work, my children would suffer for it. Um, but we'll get to more on that later. A big part of my recovery after my second round of postpartum depression was actually working. I started freelancing again, I opened my Etsy shop, and I started writing again for myself. This, of course, led to some issues about me spending too much time on things other than mothering, something my husband has regularly tried to fight, um, you know, internally, because he's one of the good ones, and he isn't trying to hold me back, but you can't help falling into what you know, even if you know better. It's going to seem random, but bear with me. My mom, a working mother, um, died in December 2020. My dad died in September 2021. Um, they were divorced, but, you know, um, things weren't perfect, but that's okay. Uh, but I was devastated after both deaths and, um, you know, I retreated into myself, into working, writing, painting, whatever the heck I could to kind of process, um, what I was feeling. Um, and that, spiral that grief process has led to a lot of introspection a lot of which leads to me ugly crying at night when a light bulb goes off and my husband's just like what is happening um but this spiral has led me to think about all of the things I tried to be while my parents were alive and the standards I was trying to live up to now that they're gone 
I'm left with the realization that the only person I needed to be proving myself to and impressing was myself. And if you haven't reached the same realization, <laughs> this is me telling you to stop worrying about what other people expect of you. We should all be asking ourselves, what do I expect of me? And more importantly, why am I expecting that of myself? It's just like self-care and self-love. We have to put in the work for ourselves in order to show up for other people. But because I had not actually put in the work to make myself proud until this past year, I feel like those around me have had to put up with a lot more than they probably should have. One of the things that I've wondered about is why I've made some of the, the decisions I made. Um, was it my mom? Was it my dad? Was it what society and the media have brainwashed us to think? Uh, so for the last month, this whole time you've gone without an episode, I've been falling deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of motherhood and what that word actually means and how even though it's 2020, it's still being held on this pedestal of morality and self-sacrifice and, you know, something to aspire to um, rather than just a part of who a woman sometimes is. Um, so buckle up because if you're like me, you're going to end up pissed hopefully not at me, but um, hopefully we can, you know, kind of stop this vicious cycle that we have all fallen into. So the idea that women want more out of life than being a wife and mother is not new, and yet conservative groups continue to find contemporary reasons to blame this want on something else like, quote, fake news or um, Hollywood, feminism, etc., um, no. Instead, feminism developed because there were women out there who wanted more. That want, of course, was dismissed, and a movement was born to make people listen. Unrelated to motherhood, but having everything to do with the definition of women, as invented by the male species, uh, I just finished a book called A Woman of No Importance. It's about an American female spy who helped the French resistance in World War II. She had an idyllic childhood in Maryland, and her family wanted her to marry rich and live happily ever after, and instead, in her 1924 yearbook, Virginia Hall wrote, quote, I must have liberty with as large a charter as I please, end quote. And I don't want to spoil Virginia's story because it's incredible, and I think everybody should read it. It's a fast read because it, you just cannot believe what you're reading, that it's real, um, and it's very relevant to what is going on currently in Europe with the war in Ukraine. Um, but fast forwarding to after her amazing work in France, where she literally was responsible for arming the resistance, freeing other agents from prison, and so much more, she was dismissed as nothing more than a woman when she came home. Rather than give this woman credit for in a role where she could influence future spies and movements, the people in charge of her at the CIA would write in her reports that she was, quote, over-emotional, end quote, and couldn't remain calm in an emergency. Um, the author says this, you know, this was a typical complaint of men regarding women anytime we spoke, basically. Um, the author, Sonia Purnell, wrote, quote, it was a subtle, if classic, undermining of a female officer who had coolly avoided capture by the Gestapo for three long years, was serving as a captain in the military reserve, and had proven that even a devastating accident could not impede her performance. A further insinuation came in the remark that she had unrealistic ideas about her value to the agency, and that her independence was her most significant feature. Virginia's card was now marked. Unsurprisingly, oh, end quote. Unsurprisingly, this 
was a sentiment shared across the board by men at this time. The war was over, the men were back, the ones that survived, and the women were expected to just pack it in and head back to the kitchen and let the men do the men's work. Um, there's My family and I just went to D.C. for my son's spring break um, a couple weeks ago, and walking through the World War II memorial, um, there's a quote on a wall that is supposed to be inspiring. To me, it was infuriating, and my husband knew at the moment he saw it. It says, Women who stepped up were measured as citizens of the nation, not as women. This was a people's war, and everyone was in it. Again, it says, quote, Women who stepped up were measured as citizens of the nation, not as women. This was a people's war, and everyone was in it. Uh, I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Hopefully you're like, oh, huh, oh, because, <laughs> newsflash, women are people. And I don't know when it was decided exactly that we were the weaker sex, that we were less deserving of being treated as fucking people, not just women or beings with a, you know, vagina and a uterus. Um so that's infuriating to get a better understanding of that um if you haven't I recommend Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex um I read it after college and I I should revisit it because it's been a while um but it it talks on this about how we have just been sublimated to be this little side character in human I don't know. It's uh, anyway. Um, so, um, you know, it seemed that because of the war, the world realized possibly for the first time, or at least publicly, that women were fully capable of doing traditional men's work. And apparently that was terrifying for men. Imagine being so fragile. I just, I can't. Um, I also just finished reading Radium Girls, which I was reading for pleasure, but then quickly realized that it absolutely applies here um, because these women were doing, if you don't know, these women were working in factories in the um, New Jersey and Chicago. I mean, basically all over the country, but they were working with radium paint, radium dye to create luminescent watch dials, dials for planes, etc., so that the people fighting in World War One and World War II could use their equipment without having to turn lights on. Um, so it was incredibly important to the war effort. These women were doing it. They loved the work. It was good pay. But there were no safety measures put in place on handling raw radium. Radium. It is a known carcinogen it is incredibly um bad for you if not used in the you know exact way it is intended to be used um i learned that when uh it was first discovered it was touted like people were drinking it like a tonic uh, but that's beside the point read the book uh, it's amazing but these women were were working with these things there were people who had told the companies, this isn't safe the way they're doing it, let's do it this way, but they didn't want to because it took too long. And in the name of, you know, national interest and the war effort, they were like, ah, fuck it. And they're just women, so who cares? Um, 
And these women very quickly developed horrific maladies, teeth falling out, jaws falling apart, tumors in places there shouldn't be tumors, um, and they died horrible, excruciating deaths, the likes that I'm sure you have never heard of because I hadn't until I read this. It is shocking. And these corporations, the government, the governmental bodies that are supposed to look out for workers, didn't do anything. Um, and these women were gaslit horrifically by the company, by the courts, by anybody in any position of authority. They didn't care that they were working women. They didn't care that their families were going into horrible debt. They didn't care that they were tarnishing their reputations by convincing a coroner to mark their death as caused by something like syphilis. Um, and when finally they found the right people to take these people to court and get these women what they deserved, they got a fraction of what they should have gotten. And it was with the company not having to take any responsibility for what it did, kind of like with the um, Sackler family and not the opioid lawsuits. Um, it's It shouldn't be shocking, but it is. And um, it's a glaring example of how little women's lives were valued um, and how, how little they are still valued in many, many parts of the world. Um, and it may sound like this is an issue separate from what has turned into um, what a book I read for this called The Mommy Myth, but um, because for so long motherhood and womanhood has been tied together, the idea that motherhood is fun, is easy, and it's supposed to be the most amazing thing a woman can do, that without becoming a mother, a woman is of lesser value. Um, you know, the idea that being a parent is mother's work it is all a social construct, constructed by men and people who didn't feel that we had a place anywhere but under the thumb of men. And even when we are, as showcased in Radium Girls, um, that... Even when you are doing everything right, you're showing up for the war effort, you're taking care of your children, you are taking care of your husband, or you're getting married and doing the damn thing, it, it, you're still not a human and you, you are not worthy of care. Um, so I, I understand that, yes, not all men, but so many of the men in power then and now are the problem. And when men not in power start to hear this rhetoric from their families, their churches, their workplace, their friends, it's hard for them to tune out, even the good ones. And it takes them a long time to unlearn these toxic beliefs. All of us, we, we're all exposed to it. I mean, there are women who believe that a woman's role is a domestic one. And it's just because of the lies that they have been fed for centuries. Um, and... You know, while parenthood has become a much more level playing field for men and women, we still have a long way to go, especially with things like parental leave and the idea that, you know, a kid's going to be fine if he doesn't see his dad all week because he's working. Um, and it, it's just, it's still not equal. Um, and the, f <laughs> the fact that it helps the mother's mental health when she's not left alone, whether her partner be male or female. Um, if she is partnered and yet she is having to carry the load of parenting alone, 
it is hard. Um, and we'll get to um, the unfair treatment of single moms in a bit. Um, and so it's um, the, <laughs> the idea, the retro idea that, you know, the mom can run on no sleep, is the one who changed the diapers and cook, clean. The idea that we want to share that workload with the person who helped us create this new life, it should not be radical. Like, why is that not baseline? That should, anybody who's willing to consummate a relationship should be agreeing to carrying half of whatever needs to be done to take care of that thing that they are creating. Um, so... Uh, this patriarchal narrative that historically led men um, to turn their kids over to the state or other family when the wife dies. They just remarry, have more kids with the new wife, and it's it's like, you know, it never happened. Like, these are all things that led to those kind of decisions. They're not made so much now because men know better. They're, they're trying. Um, but it still happens. Um, it's a lot easier for men to start over in these situations than it is for women. Um, and, you know, it's just the cards are stacked against women, no matter how you slice it. Um, and so why, why am I bringing all of this up now? Um, because I've noticed as I'm wrestling with a lot of the questions I have from my childhood, my adolescence, the decisions I've made in as adult, um, I realize that despite the fact that it's 2022, you know, a year that not too long ago we imagined we'd have flying cars and equal rights and equal pay and all this. We don't have any of that. And we are constantly bombarded with the sales pitch. Yeah, I said it. A sales pitch of motherhood. We have influencers with their whitewashed HGTV homestead aesthetic pitching motherhood as this altruistic, easy, amazing experience, one where you have time to do your hair, work out, keep your counters clean, have date nights with your partner, and it is so far-fetched and unrealistic, but it's leading, and it's leading other mothers to feel so much guilt and a sense of failure that inevitably contributes to anxiety, depression, unrealistic standards held by our partners, family, and friends. I think it's probably all tied back into the conservative movement, which has really been fired up in the last few years, kind of always, as you'll see, but especially lately, as they try to wrestle control away from the more liberal sides of the country. And in a lot of areas, their narrative is working. It has a history of working. But the more we understand where this narrative is coming from, the easier we can fight it and the easier we can stop taking it personally and shut it down when we see it. So who's to blame? I know you don't want men to be the answer. Nobody does. I don't. Um, you know, men are great. My husband is fantastic. But the men in advertising and media and politics and churches are typically the ones that have been driving this narrative. Um, and fortunately, today, there are a lot of writers who are trying to reframe that narrative by picking apart the bullshit that they are seeing. Um, and um, I'll mention my favorite in a little bit. Um, so... While researching this, I found the amazing book, The Mommy Myth and the Idealization of Motherhood and How It Has Undermined Women. And it is fantastic and incredibly eye-opening. Just like the book, uh, Reproductive Justice and Introduction, which I talked about during the last episode, this book points out that the mission feminists set out 
initially and and how it was so grossly distorted by outside forces that we are still right now fighting to get it back on track with but with the counter narratives from the right a 24-hour news cycle never-ending social media internet access it it just keeps getting harder um so this book um is written by two mothers um and they open it by saying, and I'm going to read you the whole introduction because it's, it's great. It says, quote, Today, one day of the year, America is celebrating motherhood in home, church, restaurant, candy shop, flower store. Obvious enough, but then the tone changes. The other 364 days, she preserves the apple pie of family life and togetherness and protects the sanctity of the male ego and profit. She lives through her husband and children. Now things get more radical. She is sacrificed on the altar of reproduction, husband and children. Now things get more radical. She is sacrificed on the altar of reproduction. She is damned to the dreary world of domesticity by day and legal rape by night. She is convinced that happiness and her lost identity can be recovered by buying more and more and more and more. Um, <laughs> so that was, a, that was an imagine this as an advertise being set out to the public. Um, and then they say, or imagine a bunch of women handing out flyers titled notice all governments and then demand quote wages for housework. Yes. They read, they read, we clean your homes and your factories. We raise the next generation of workers for you. Whatever else we may do, we are the housewives of the world in return for our work. You have only asked us to work harder. As a result, we are serving notice to you that we intend to be paid for the work we do. We want wages for every dirty toilet, every painful childbirth, every indecent assault, every cup of coffee, and every smile. And if we don't get what we want, then we will simply to refuse to work any longer. The result? Now you will rot in your own garbage. The broadside ends with, we want it in cash, retroactive immediately, and we want all of it. Uh, <laughs> um... The poster described, so all of that was on a poster, and it was described, I mean, it was in, um, it appeared in a, what was it, in a Cleveland publication um, in 1969 on Mother's Day, courtesy of the Women's International Conspiracy from Hell, otherwise known as Witch, which was founded in 1968 with the express purpose of staging outrageous and often very funny pro-feminist actions um wages for housework was a feminist broadside as well one of many that appeared in the late 1960s and early 1970s denouncing the fact that housewives and mothers were overworked underpaid and very much underappreciated um and this you know this argument that women's work is not valued has come up recently i've seen it in several places and several mainstream news articles where they're like you know the average mom all of the work that she does if she were being paid it would equal to like a hundred and eighty thousand dollars more now because of inflation but that's that's the fact and and yet we seen we don't see any of that and we can't even get the government to throw us a bone in terms of child care but more on that to come um the book goes on to discuss the you know, women's liberation movement that was starting in the 60s and 70s. And it says, 
Once upon a time and not so very long ago, millions of women across the country, many of them mothers, stood up for themselves and demanded to know why women and housewives and mothers in particular were second-class citizens, consigned to financial dependence on men, relegated to do housework that was necessary, endless yet looked down upon, and why women were deemed to be the only gender who should give up everything in exchange for raising children. Like, snap, 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 snap. Um... And, and that was the women's liberation movement. That is how it started. They were saying, what the hell? Why are we working so hard? And why are we the only ones working so hard? Why is the, why is the only work that is counted the work that is done outside of the house? And yet we are essential to keeping this ship running. Um, and it is the uh, conservatives who turned and <laughs> made feminists look like grim-faced, humorless, anti-family women because they couldn't get a man um and the author writes quote well in fact the problem was that all too many of them had gotten a man married him had his kids and then discovered that as mothers they were never supposed to have their own money their own identity their own aspirations time to pee or a brain and yes some women indeed some women indeed became bad tempered as a result i love that not that it happened but that it was said um so, um, they point out that, uh, as outlandish as the expectations are today surrounding intensive mothering, they are hardly the fault of feminists. Feminists never said, hey, great mothers are working 90 hours a week as it is. Let's add a 40 hour a week job on top and not ask dad to do an iota more than he's already doing. Feminists were the ones who tried to make motherhood less onerous, less lonely, less costly to women. Gloria Steinem's Hopes for the Future, printed in U.S. News and World Report in 1975, um, she wrote, quote, Responsibility for children won't be exclusively the woman's anymore, but shared equally by men <clears throat> and shared by the community, too. That means that work patterns will change for both women and men, and women can enter all fields just as men can. And um, this book was published in the early 2000s, and as you can see, we... 1975 was when Gloria Steinem wrote that. We still have not achieved that. Um, and it's the author says, um, we're not there yet, but if you are a mother and have your own salary, let alone a job you find remotely rewarding, a daycare center near you, after school programs, maternity leave, however stingy, a daughter who gets to play soccer or basketball, a partner who, who understands that making lunches, finding babysitters, and taking the kid out in the stroller are not entirely your responsibility, and if you stay at home and see this as a choice and not an edict, then your life as a mother has been revolutionized by feminism. Um, and, you know, I liked to, to think that mine was. I, I chose to stay home. I was kind of forced by my poor mental health, but it was still a choice and it was a choice that we were lucky to have. Um, but you know, um, so the feminist movement goes on. People are freaking out, especially the church. Um, and then in the eighties with talk radio and, you know, more news shows, um, we got talking heads like Rush Limbaugh, Dr. Laura, Christina Hoff Summers, Phyllis Schlafly, Anita Bryant, Pat Robertson, John McLaughlin, and George Will, to name a few. And um, this, these are the creators of the, you know, anti-feminist movement, pretty much. Um, they, uh, 
they said that, let's see, um, <laughs> women weren't happy simply because they'd ignored the siren song to become mothers. So they're saying feminists are just mad because they don't have kids. Um, but false, the majority of feminists were women with children and women without children arguing for better treatment of women with children. Um, so, uh, let's see. There's a, so much in this book about the feminist movement in the 60s and the 70s and about, um, you know, the cries for help, the publications that were put out to call attention to the major glaring inequalities um, that these women were facing. Um, and <laughs> uh, feminist writer Letty Cotton Pogrebin, sorry if that's really wrong, um, while acknowledging but not dismissing that there were a few feminists who saw children as the bane of women's existence, pointed out, quote, the rest of us, scores of feminists of every age, race, marital status, and sexual persuasion are talking seriously, thoughtfully, and candidly about motherhood. She insisted that we care deeply about children, whether we have our own or not. We work to improve educational curricula, child care facilities, health services, and the childbirth experience. We are saying that men are parents too, that fatherhood need be no less important or time-consuming than motherhood. Truly, feminists are talking about choice, about making the decision to become pregnant and choosing a motherly role that is right for ourselves and our children. Um, there are so many articles and journal articles and news stories cited in this book. Um, it's really, really amazing. Um, and uh, one of the other things that is quoted after um, Letty's comment is um, Adrienne Rich's, uh, a quote from her um, book, uh, it's called Of Woman Born, Motherhood as Experience and Institution. And it came out, it won the National Book Award um, in 1976. Uh, <laughs> according to the authors, it was given, you know, as gifts to women and mothers back in the day. Some appreciated it, some not. But the um, Rich writes, quote, When we think of motherhood, we're supposed to think of Renoir's blooming women with rosy children at their knees, Raphael's ecstatic Madonna's. We are not supposed to think of a woman lying in a Brooklyn hospital with ice packs on her aching breast because she has been convinced she could not nurse a child, of a girl in her teens pregnant by her father, of two women who love each other struggling to keep custody of their children against the hostility of ex-husbands in courts. We are not supposed to think of a woman trying to conceal her pregnancy so she can go on working as long as possible because when her condition is discovered, she will be fired without disability insurance. Men have spoken often in abstractions of our joys and pains. We have, in our long history, accepted the stresses of the institution as if they were a law of nature. Um, end quote. And the authors of The Mommy Myth say, she saw motherhood as a patriarchal institution imposed on women quote, which aims at ensuring that all women shall remain under male control. Um, Rich, who had been recognized as an important, quote, woman poet, uh, recounted her own experiences as the mother of three young boys. Instead of proposing somewhat optimistically that motherhood would be so much better if there were 
um, marriage contracts and daycare centers, rich cut to the everyday experience of raising kids and said simply motherhood can be hell. Um, the first chapter of her book begins with, quote, My children cause me the most exquisite suffering of which I have any experience. It is the suffering of ambivalence, the murderous alternation between bitter resentment and raw-edged nerves, and blissful gratification and tenderness. Sometimes I seem to myself, in my feelings toward these tiny guiltless beings, a monster of selfishness and intolerance. I love them, but it's in the enormity and inevitability of this love that the sufferings lie. End quote. Oh, sorry. She goes on to say, We need to imagine a world in which every woman is the presiding genius of her own body. In such a world, women will truly create new life, bringing forth not only children, if and as we choose, but the visions and the thinking necessary to sustain, console, and alter human existence, a new relationship to the universe. This is where we have to begin. And I love that so much because I still feel like we as modern women are trying to fight that um, narrative. You know, social media makes it look so pretty and fantastic. Meanwhile, ads are being banned on award shows and Super Bowl for mommy care products, postpartum, tampon commercials. I mean, they don't want to see the ugly human side of women. It's, it's insane. Um, so as the feminist movement gained traction, men went off to fight in Vietnam and Korea, more and more women were working. And, um, there's a statistic that says in the, was it 80s, 70s, the, um, the highest percentage of working people were mothers of preschool age children. Um, and, but there was no, you know, comprehensive, uh, childcare for people. Um, so that became an issue. And, um, we had some in place briefly, um, I don't remember which administration it was, but Nixon promptly did away with it. And then Reagan, ugh, Reagan, he did even more. And then the Bush, senior Bush, junior, uh, came in and, and eliminated it even more. Um, and <laughs> to aid in those efforts by conservatives to, you know, not see the need all of a sudden for childcare, um, were moral panics. I truly believe moral panics are politicians' ways of getting whatever the fuck they want. Um, in the 80s, it was a satanic panic. They were like, oh my goodness, if you put your children in daycare, they're going to be molested by Satan worshipers or sacrificed by Satan worshipers. There were daycare workers taken to court over allegations that proved to be 100% false. Um, and you know, rather than blaming whatever fucking moron came up with the satanic panic, the onus was put on the mother. Like, well, this wouldn't have happened if she had stayed home with her kids. How could you pick work and career over your child? Stay home with your kids and then the satanists won't win. Okay. Um, that was the, you know, moral panic of the eighties. Um, then we had the war on drugs, the war on the welfare mother, I'm using air quotes, um, and then, you know, motherhood itself 
with cases like Susan Smith and Andrea Yates, which are horribly tragic cases. I'm not going to get into them here, but the Andrea Yates story we are going to get to next week. Um, and, um, you know, now the moral, well, a few years ago it was immigration and what are these people doing to our children and how are they coming in and being so violent and blah, 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 blah. So a Republican could get into office and then now, as the Republicans are clamoring for more power, the moral panic is about gay children and transgender children. And meanwhile, us moms are screaming our heads off saying, stop fucking with our kids. This has to stop. And it's falling on deaf ears. Um, so, yeah, sorry, that was a downer. But all that to say is moral panics are put in place to attack mothers, keep women in their place, and the power where people think it belongs with the male species. Um, so it, if you think this is tin hat territory, I'm, I don't blame you. I thought so too. Then I read this book and again, everything is cited. There are facts, statistics, articles, quotes from people. It's so full of information. You cannot not go down this tin hat rabbit hole. Um, it's just insane. So, um, it's not surprising, as I've sh I'm sure you've seen in the last few years with the current moral panics, that when these things happen, so-called experts come out of the woodwork with a solution to these problems, which also happen to be bullshit, but they have real and damaging effects on people. And um, I did not realize until I read this book that I myself was guilty for falling for some of the lies around motherhood and childcare. Um many of which came from Dr. Spock, who I knew was a piece of shit, but who somehow his lies about mothering were ingrained in my subconscious. And I didn't realize it until I read this book. Um, so he came to, you know, um, power, <laughs> kind of, in the, uh, I guess, 60s and 70s. And, um... Let's see, there, I have a statistic that said his book was the number one selling book. Um, ugh, where is it? Um, his book originally published in 1946 sold more than any other book in history with the exception of the Bible. Can you believe that? And it, he wasn't called out on his bullshit until the 70s. So this guy had a 30-year reign on the parenthood market before the feminists got to say, yo, you're full of shit. Um, according to him and other experts, air quotes, like him, um, the one thing, you know, a mother could never do is trust her, her judgment um, because it would result in inevitable errors. Um Read the authors of the book say, quote, reading these advice columns 30 years later feels like being in London during the Blitz, but with no underground or bomb shelters. What was there to protect mothers from the repeated ideological st strafing from these privileged white men, none of whom had been mothers, let alone working mothers? Here, according to Spock in 1970, was what the good mother did. Women's movement or no women's movement. Um, quote, psychoanalytic studies... <laughs> 
i.e. the tablets on the mount, quote, showed that those individuals who became extraordinarily productive or creative in their fields got their inspiration from a particularly strong relationship with a mother who had especially high aspirations for her children. The author inserts, forget all those stories about famous authors, artists, and actors whose mothers were nightmares. It goes on, quote, as instinctive expressions of an intense emotional relationship, the good mother tries instinctively um, to get a smile out of her baby and teaches him pat a cake and peekaboo. She plays his favorite records and points out the pictures in his books. She uses baby talk to teach him the names of his family foods. While these abilities were hardwired into mothers, a mother's substitute, uh, um, example, a child care provider, could do these things too, admitted Spock. But here was the rub. The child could develop a real dependence on the substitute. Then, if the substitute left, the deprivation will be as great as the average child would feel if his mother had died and will have long-lasting effects, such as deep reluctance to love anyone else again. <laughs> this uh, article that this is quoted from in 1970 was called Working Mothers, Some Possible Child Care Solutions. <laughs> Anyone who really loves her child can't talk casually about turning him over to a nursery or a commune or an individual for most of his waking hours during his first three years to allow his mother to work full time. If mothers of children under three have to work, they should work two to three hours a day. Once the kid was in school, mothers should still make sure to be home by 3.30 or 4 at the latest. Um, and that's actually in his his writing. Uh and it's the authors say so dr spock thought it was fine for mothers to work as long as you didn't really care about the psychological well-being of your child at the end of the column we learned that dr spock regrets that he is not able to answer letters personally um they write we can only imagine what kind of comments were starting to fill his mailbox spock was one of the first to bring the now totally discredited notion of bonding to large female audience um, and it's discredited because his research air quotes was about monkeys um, <laughs> the, the authors say, when in doubt, male experts have always found ways to use examples from the animal kingdom to keep women in their place. Naturally enough, the bonding research reminded Spock of studies done on baby monkeys, which when quote, isolated in infancy and then placed with mothers with others at puberty show very abnormal behavior, end quote. Spock also helped form the myths around women giving up breastfeeding, like how crippling depressing it was to stop and how hard it was and how it was just wasn't natural to do so until the child was ready etc etc um and there was no science or proof to back up any of his claims so i don't know if my mom was exposed to this as a kid of born in the end of the 50s raised in the 60s and 70s i don't know if her mother was getting this if it transferred to my mom I don't know, but somehow a lot of this stuff, the guilt that was created by Dr. Spock was definitely passed down to me. Um, and I had so many meltdowns about, you know, should I go back to work? Should I do this? Should I do that? Before I'd even given birth. And then cue the guilt spiral. Once I did give birth, couldn't go back to work and felt like a failure. And then cue the third guilt cycle when I did want to start working again when my kids were a little older and I was mentally more stable and you know it's just it's bullshit other people are putting their expectations on us with no cause no proof no scientific reasoning nothing um just white male privilege um so uh 
um, it was during the reign of Spock that other male columnists, male, male columnists, none of these women, none of these were written by women, include in Red Book, in uh, whatever freaking women's magazines were out and cited in this article, I mean, in this book, none of them were women, or very, very few. Dr. Laura, but, you know, she, we know which side of the aisle she was on. So, um, uh, the 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 one line from a an article that got me um was this um let me see oh yeah um there was a male columnist that wrote that you know women should all mothers excuse me should always remain calm and reserved and never raise our voice for fear of quote creating psychological damage in our children and um uh, i've noticed in all of these that not one of these men said fathers shouldn't yell at their children, spank their children, drink excessively, or smoke in the house. It was all 100% on the mother. Um, so this also leads to the plight and stigma of the single mother. God forbid you should be a single mother by these standards. Um, single mothers have been so horribly vilified by the media, especially by right-leaning political pundits. Um, if you want a good, easy listen on the subject of the welfare mom, um, uh, there's a fantastic episode of the You're Wrong About podcast. Um, I will link it in the show description. It is great. Um, and the book, The Mommy Myth, gives so many examples of quote, examples the media tried to make about the single mother, how she could not possibly do right by her child simply because she was single. And, you know, apparently being abused or mistreated was better than being alone um, with a child. Uh, so my favorite quote about this was um, <laughs> when they talk about Ellen Bernstein, the actress who played the mother in The Exorcist, they said she played a single mother in The Exorcist and you see where that got her. Um so, and, and <laughs> that leads me to the single mother in the church, but that is a complete other episode and topic, which I fully intend to, um, do. Um, so the stigma of the single mother, then, you know, rabbit holes straight to, uh, the single mother and welfare discussion. Um, according to the media at the time and the conservative right, uh, single mothers on welfare were a urge on our nation and a horrific problem that needed to be stopped and it wasn't really and the majority of women on welfare at the time in the 80s and 90s was surprised da, 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 white women and not all of them were single um and none of these arguments for why welfare shouldn't exist or why it should be less or why it should focus on xyz none of them acknowledged dual parent homes where the male partner wasn't working or couldn't work. Um, and it's always on the mom saying, we'll get to work. Well, this one did it. This one's no longer on welfare. She got a job. Um, but she may have lived in a city that had more jobs. She may have had transportation issues. I mean, like, it takes none of the human experience into account when you are hearing these arguments. Um, so... Uh, then the whole single mom panic 
leads us to directly the uh, teen mom panic of the 90s and 2000s. Um, I'm not sure if you remember the dumpster baby stories and the prom bathroom baby stories, which led to things like the safe place laws where you can drop a baby off at a fire or police station, which I agree are are good um, in times of crisis. Great, fantastic. But it wasn't a pan- it wasn't like pandemic levels of teen pregnancy. The statistic, the actual statistic, was that 1.2% of teens were teen moms. 1.2%. That's not nothing, but it's not what they were making it out to be. And if they had really wanted to solve the issue of teen pregnancy, which they still have not, they would have put in comprehensive sex ed. They would have put in, you know, access to contraceptives, um, access to health care, access to free and safe, or at least safe and affordable abortions. Um, and it is just gobsmacking that that is still something that teenagers and women face. Um, and I had another point to make about that, but I lost it because I know this is going on forever. Um, then now as we try to cover up all the bad things as moms do, you know, the rise of social media and tabloids and all of that stuff led to the super mom image and celebrity mom profiles. And that made everything look so fun and wonderful and clean and tidy and easy and never once discussed their personal trainers, their housekeeper, their, you know, lawn maintenance crew for their million dollar mansion and um whatever other help they had in freaking life um so and child care they had child care they could take their children to work um so uh uh about the child care thing I, I have in my notes just one more reminder that um I, I'd mentioned Nixon, Reagan, Bush, blah, 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 as being, you know, anti-national child care help. Um, and it is noted in this book that um, Pat Buchanan uh, was one of the ones who led the charge to get politicians to vote no on the issue. And it was used as a negotiating tactic. And it still is to get what they want from the left. And, you know, if the... Democrats don't want to kowtow to the Republicans, then nobody wins. Child care doesn't happen, and the Republicans don't get what they want. And so, but who suffers? Women and children. Thank you. Um, so, back to social media, super moms, uh, mom fluers, mom fluencers, excuse me. Um, this whole thing, it just blows my mind. I hate it. It's disgusting. Um, I hate parading your kids. I hate the beige clothes trend. I hate the let's shiplap everything. Let's be, you know, super HGTV mom. And then basically they're just ad, they're, they're poorly paid ad people now. Um, advertising companies wanted a way to reach more moms. And so the momfluencer was born and now they put stylized posts, get paid, and we buy stuff. Um, and... This is my tin hat theory on this, is that the ad companies are responsible for where we are um, because um, the book points out, you know, how much money has been made about over toys and supplies we need to raise the baby. And um, if by continuing to 
have children, become mothers, we are creating new customers. We are becoming new customers. And they don't want the money train to stop. And so when they sponsor a political candidate, it's going to be someone that's going to keep the money train going. Okay, tin hat off. Back to our regular scheduled programming. Um, yeah, Sarah Peterson is a writer who is one of the ones tackling the momfluencer sphere. So I'm not going to delve too much into it because you should definitely check her out. Her website, I will link in the description, but it's Sarah, S-A-R-A dash Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N dot com. Um, sign up for her newsletter. She goes into deep dives on there. Read her essays that she's got linked on there. She is fantastic. And she has a new book coming out called Momfluenced. Um, and she also guest pods on um, Under the Influence podcast, which is great and also talks about this issue. And also um, Burnt Toast is another podcast that she's usually on. Um, and then... So let's see. Oh yeah, I do think social media is making it harder on moms because momfluencers aside, it's, you know, you're only seeing the good parts of people's lives. And so if your life isn't looking like that right now, you're feeling like shit about it and you shouldn't. Um, moms get a bad rap. We are guilted constantly, upheld to insanely unrealistic standards and yet so many of us, including myself, continue to fall into the trap of becoming mothers. Do not take me wrong. I love, with a capital L, being a mother. But it is so hard. And there are days when I remember what it was like to sleep in, what it was like to not have to meal plan, do endless amounts of laundry, and think about other people's needs 24-7. And I miss those days. I would be lying if I said I didn't. That what, do I want to go back to those days? No. I made some questionable choices back then too. And I, I wouldn't change anything. But I still miss those times. I miss being fun and impulsive. And that's okay. I still think I'm a better person now because I had kids, because I married a man who has pushed me and challenged me and encouraged me to get better, you know, get in and better understand myself. And at 37, I finally do. Um, so, and again, I didn't realize I'd fallen into so many of these narratives subconsciously until I really started to look at myself and really kind of, again, fall down this rabbit hole. Um, and I, it's shocking to me that it's still an issue that, you know, women have been arguing for better treatment for moms and children since the forties, probably even before that, but newspapers weren't what they are now and media, all that. Um, so yeah, I think if we keep talking about it and we keep trying to dismantle these patriarchal narratives that are put into place to only serve kind of the capitalist machine, uh, you know, we'll be better off and we raise children who are thoughtful and think about these things and, um, and we challenge our husbands to step up and say, look, support me. Uh, I don't want to do this by myself. Um, so yeah, because it's hard enough. It's hard enough to just be a woman. It shouldn't, it's just ridiculous. We shouldn't be alone in this fight. Um, and we shouldn't be being tricked by media to think what we have is not great or that the decisions we're making are wrong um 
we should all be doing more to listen to ourselves um, and help each other out. So I'm going to wrap this up because this is long. It got a little rambly. I'm sorry. It, there's so much information. I'm going to link the book in the description notes. Please check it out. Read it. Skim it. I don't care. It's just so full of information. It's wonderful. Um, check out Sarah Peterson. Check out the You're Wrong About podcast, Momfluenced, uh, I mean, Under the Influence and Burnt Toast. And um, as always, you can find me at goodmomshavebaddays.com. Good mom have good moms have bad days at gmail.com and good moms have bad days on Instagram. If anything I've said today resonates with you or made you think about a time when you found yourself falling for weird narratives that you're like, where the hell did that come from? Why did I think this or why did I do that? Um, you know, email me. I would love to have more of a discussion around this. So that's it for today. I'll be back next week talking about um, Andrea Yates. So brace yourselves. Um, it'll be good. It'll be good. It won't be, it won't be as dark as it sounds. So, um, yeah, tune in. Thanks for the support and be kind to yourselves. Bye.